Welcome to Conversations with Dr. Jennifer, a collection of interviews on the topics of relationships, sexuality, spirituality, and more, all featuring Dr. Finlayson Fife. A couple years ago, my husband and my daughter were getting ready to leave on a backpacking trip. At the time, my daughter Madison was 11 years old. This was gonna be their biggest backpacking trip that they've ever had taken. Uh, They were headed to the Wind Rivers. They were gonna be hiking for five days, four nights, and covering a lot of mileage. Maddie started backpacking when she was five years old and fell in love with it. And ever since then, they've gone out every year. But for some reason, the night before they were to leave on this trip, I was feeling really, really anxious about it. Uh, It was playing every possible scenario through my head of what could happen. Imagining my husband getting eaten by a bear and Maddie being left alone in the wilderness without any cell reception. And uh, I remember talking to my husband and telling him that I was feeling a little anxious about the whole situation. And he asked me if I thought it was the spirit prompting me or if I was just feeling nervous. And I've thought about that a lot before he asked the question, after he asked the question, like, how do we know if when we're feeling uneasy about a situation, if it's our intuition or if it's just our anxiety and which one do we listen to? My name's Shrey Phelps. And in this interview, Christy and I decided to collaborate and together ask Jennifer some questions about anxiety. Not only did we get to discuss anxiety in this interview, but we also got to experience a healthy amount of anxiety trying to record it. We encountered a plethora of technical difficulties, one of which being towards the end of the interview. For some reason, my screen froze and Jennifer and Christy couldn't hear me, but I could hear them. And so towards the end of the interview, uh, I essentially just got to eavesdrop in on a conversation with Christy and Jennifer. I found Jennifer's perspectives and views around anxiety extremely helpful for someone who deals with anxiety on a regular basis and also for people who love someone with anxiety. I also hope this is the first of many interviews in which we'll have Jennifer and Christy together. Sheree that it's hard for me as an anxious person because I have to push through a lot of anxiety to do normal things and but I also believe that you can have intuition and have insight into what's a good idea and what's a bad idea so it's difficult to like push through the anxiety and stop at the intuition if you know what I mean mm-hmm. so discerning do you have the yeah, discerning, yeah yeah sure So I kind of teach myself to not listen to myself, but I also want to listen when it's important. So how can a person tease out the difference between intuition and anxiety? So just to really be clear, you just called me an anxiety expert and I'm truly not actually. So, I mean, my expertise is relationships and sexuality. And so there are, to anybody listening, I will try to point out when things are at the level of anxiety disorder or needing help with anxiety, which, you know, I have a basic knowledge of, but not um, certainly defer to anything your professional you're working with is saying around these things, because 
I don't have the extensive knowledge that some people do around this. But that said, you know, I'm working with people a lot on growth and development and anxiety is inherent to growth and development. It's about kind of pushing ourselves into the uncertainty that is a part of development. And so helping people to know how to think about anxiety or what's a way they can relate to it. So that's, you know, kind of that's what I'm bringing to this conversation. So I'll do my best with it, but it is, um, I'm not, I'm not the last word on any of this. So your question, Christy, of how do you tell the difference? Well, I remember reading Gavin De Becker's book about the gift of fear and also protecting the gift, which is a book he wrote about the gift of fear is basically understanding or appreciating and valuing our body's ability to signal to us when something is wrong. And also in protecting our children, like how we can pick up on cues or indications that they are being exploited in some way or harmed in some way. And one of the things I remember him talking about is making a distinction between a kind of worry or anxiety, a chronic anxiety, and an indication. So I think that's the point that you're, you're asking for. And what he was saying was that some experts have you know, made a distinction between fear and anxiety. Anxiety is imagining the possibilities of what could happen. You're walking down a dark street. You're imagining you could be harmed. Somebody could. So that's anxiety. And fear is when you have data, information that suggests there is, you know, that something bad is going to happen or could happen, right? So De Becker makes a similar kind of comparison or juxtaposition, which is that if you are imagining all the things that could happen to your child, right, what the babysitter could be doing, what could happen when they go out on this adventure or whatever, that's more anxiety versus information that feels off, right? Mm -hmm. Something that makes you feel, wait, I don't let, there's something about that babysitter that's making me uncomfortable. And the antidote to that is you go and you get more information or you get, right, if you're in a perfectly rational mind, you're, which none of us are, so we can get to that in a minute, but <laughs> I mean, all things being equal, if you are being given information that makes you feel off, you go and find more information. You go and, you know, I remember being in this really challenging situation. I needed a babysitter kind of last minute. There seemed to be like this perfect fit. I needed her to be the right choice. She came over for me to meet her and immediately something felt off about her. And when I would ask her questions, she had all the right answers, but it just kept feeling off. She was, you know, seemed very interested in, in the wrong things. And so um, I kept getting more information. I called her um, the, the names she had given me, even though I didn't want to do that because I just wanted her to be the right choice. And the more I pursued information, the more I realized she actually was lying about who she was, lying about she had sort of faked being a member of the church, being like in the singles ward because she was trying to get access to church resources. So anyway, my point in telling this is just that I knew I wanted to feel one thing, but when I kept sort of getting this sense that something was off as I went and got more information, it gave me more reason to understand what my intuitive brain was trying to tell me. 
So you talked about how like there's the anxiety part is your brain thinking about all the possibilities. So like, for example, when my husband and I go trail running, we have to think about like, they're going to be, if they're extended hours, we have to think about some of the possibilities that could mm -hmm. happen and plan yes. before that. So how is that different than yeah, anxiety? Yeah. When you have to think about like, here's some possibilities that could happen and let's prepare for those. Yeah, right. And so there's nothing wrong, of course, with thinking about possibilities. But when it's like worry and bombarding, that's different than, okay, we want to make sure we have enough water. We want to make sure we've brought an extra parachute. I'm just, I don't know exactly what it would be, but here are some things that could go wrong. And this allows us to be prepared. But that's not a catastrophic way of thinking where someone who tends to worry is thinking about catastrophic possibilities and almost thinks about them as if they're almost inevitable, like that they're that they're just an inch away from all those things happening. And sometimes worry functions, meaning as human beings, we got to give ourselves a little bit of a break because we are vulnerable beings handling tremendous amounts of uncertainty all the time, right? Bad things happen to good people. And part of living well is just figuring out how to tolerate that fact that you can be a good person doing good in the world and still have terrible things happen. And that there's very little we can do about it. Now, it doesn't mean we can't do anything to, in fact, living life well is, is that adage, that AA adage, which is, I can't, I know, I always botch it. You'd think after all these years, I would remember how this goes. But basically, you, you discern between what you do have control over and what you don't have control over, right? You have the wisdom to make that distinction and you control what you can. And so preparing for the trail running is controlling what you can while tolerating that even in the best of circumstances, you don't have control. And so anxiety treatments tend to focus on allowing your brain to settle down around the reality of what you can't control. It's not telling yourself that it won't happen, right? It's more about handling that you don't know what might happen, right? You don't have control over it. And so in our intuitive but sometimes misguided effort to handle our anxiety, we come up with ways to imagine we are controlling things that in fact we're not controlling. So, you know, if you think about anxiety of like a scale of zero to 10, zero being completely at ease, um, that, you know, a lot of people that are carrying anxiety are kind of hanging out at a, at a, four all the time, right? They're just kind of got anxiety that's just there at all times. And then a thought or an idea or a possibility makes that anxiety shoot up. This plane could go down. If I go flying, you know, if I take, um, if I take this flight, maybe we'll all die, you know, so a thought can shoot it up. And then people will look for strategies to get it to come down a little. So I can do things behaviorally, or they may think thoughts that, you know, they re let's say, okay, I left the stove on. Well, they think thoughts like, no, I'm, every time I use it, I turn it off. So they're thinking thoughts to reassure themselves 
it only brings it down a little. So the thought becomes, the behavior becomes like a way to pull it down to say a five or a six, but you're still, how to say it, engaging behaviors or thoughts that give you the illusion of control, but don't actually expand your tolerance of uncertainty. Does that make sense? And so we are then still swimming in anxiety all the time because we've got a false control that doesn't actually reassure us. So growth is always about tolerance of anxiety, tolerance of uncertainty, right? And that's, that's a big ask for human beings. <laughs> but it is something that you can get better at, right? And build your yes. muscles on. You can, exactly. yeah. So Dr. Schnarch would often say, you know, we have to make a choice between productive discomfort or unproductive discomfort. And the idea is we don't have a choice about whether or not we're anxious in the world. We only have a choice about whether or not that anxiety is expanding us versus constricting us. And so people that live well live expansively. I talk about it in terms of relationships and marriages. There's a lot of Eros energy in those marriages. That is expansive energy. We as human beings need this feeling of growth to feel alive and to feel happy. But to grow, we have to tolerate the uncertainty that you could try something, that you could be, you know, winging something, so to speak, and it still doesn't, you know, that it might not turn out the way you want, you know. And so a lot of times people who do hard things just have more tolerance of the uncertainty than people who tend to hold back, not necessarily more talent. Okay. So, so a lot of us, you know, it's whether or not, and, and as you step into the uncertainty and you survive it, the brain learns like it's not going to die. It can handle itself. And so you know, as Christy is saying, you, you can make decisions. Now, when we pull back, it feels good. Our anxiety goes down and it feels better in the moment. But generally, our overall anxiety increases because we tell ourselves we can't do things, we can't handle them, that it was good for us to retreat. And so then our sense of us being small and the world being stronger than us increases. And of course, I don't mean you need to always be pushing yourself at all times, but there's often this sense that you know that you're falling into the lesser part of yourself and it undermines your self-confidence and self-respect versus stepping towards what scares you. Um, so in the men's group I had um, that I do group coaching with, sometimes they post ideas and things to each other. And so I think it's James Hollis, Hollis that said something like, does this choice enlarge me or diminish me? And to always choose uncomfortable enlargement over comfortable diminishment, right? So that's really important. I've seen this very much with my kids where if they will go do the thing that scares them, they come out happier. They come out feeling better. They feel more like, they can affect the world where if they go into their fear and anxiety, well, they feel smaller and they feel worse and they feel more agitated. And so, you know, that's why I think we often talk about faith as a virtue is because it's the courage to act in the world despite 
fear despite uncertainty. Do you think then someone who has some level of anxiety around a situation and pushes through that is able to almost experience more of a, I don't know, more of a reward because of the anxiety? Does that make sense? Like anxiety um, can almost enhance your experience? Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that's true. I mean, good sex, there is always a little bit of anxiety. It's not too predictable, right? It's, it's ex you're stepping into a kind of pleasant uncertainty. People do often talk about like the, that sense that it's rewarding. It's like this feeling of, so human beings, we like stasis, we like predictability, we like comfort, we like the sense of home, right? But we also love adventure. And so we're beings that want both things. We want expansion, we want growth, we want uncertainty, we want the reward of traversing new lands. And we don't want just one or the other. It's not like we always want to be out on an adventure because it gets exhausting. But you yeah. also don't always want to just be home on the couch, curled up with a blanket, right? In a book. You want both realities for a really balanced life. And so there's a lot to that expansion and uncertainty that is rewarding. So I was listening to a podcast this morning where Sam Harris was interviewing the person who does the Happiness Lab podcast. Mm -hmm. I can't remember her name, but they were talking about the experiencing self and the remembering self and that you can go through an experience that's stressful to you and scary and it's kind of miserable along yeah. the way. But then your remembering self looking back remembers, you know, feels yeah. happy about the experience and glad that you did it. And I've experienced that a lot in my own life. Um, Absolutely. You know, we've found ourselves in precarious situations on vacations, zip lining and things I didn't yes. want to do, things my husband had to drag me to do, but I push myself to do them. It wasn't even that fun at the time, but looking back, those are some of my best memories. But what yes. I really liked about what they were saying is that you can tap into that when you're in the difficult experience and think about your yes. remembering self and how you're going to remember the experience. Right. Right. And, exactly. And like something cool. bad happens, you know, your car gets, you know, breaks down or what. It can be stressful, but you can also think like someday I'm going to look back on this and laugh that or whatever, that this was this funny thing that happened on our vacation or whatever, that, you know, absolutely those experiences are often challenging, but they are the things that we remember that we laugh about for years. I mean, I laugh about stupid things that have happened to me for years after <laughs> and tell the stories and so on. And so you can, you can extract a lot of joy out of that of those expansive, they're usually expansive experiences, right? I mean, sometimes it's just funny things that go wrong. But oftentimes, when we are challenged outside of our comfort, it we ultimately see it as one of the best experiences of our lives or the most important and pivotal ones. But yes, I think that's a brilliant idea to remember that someday I will be grateful for this someday I will feel very positively about this. Yeah. Jennifer, in some of your <clears throat> other podcasts, you've talked about how People are just different when it comes to anxiety. Yeah. Um, some can be maybe more hypersensitive. I think is yes. what you've referred to it and some undersensitive. Yes. Um, I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit. Well, yeah. Again, I'm not an expert on this, but you know, generally speaking, I remember Bessel van der Kock uh, in a presentation on trauma and PTSD and so on. He was talking about this range in terms of how much anxiety tolerance human beings have. And people that tend to be more sensitive and artistic and in tune with the world 
you know, they have a gift in the sense that they're more tuned in to the disequilibriums of life. They're more aware of the uncertainty. They're more aware of the loss and the grief and so on. And so that's often part of their, the sensitivity is often a part of their artistic or musical abilities and so on. Um, but it may mean that they're more bombarded by the day-to-day -day of life. And some people are like, hey, let's, you know, I remember one of my daughter's friends saying, you know, I just like, I just want to do something. I want to break a rule. Let's like burn something. And she's like, what? You know, my daughter's much more anxious. She's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, but her friend is much more like looking for an adventure, something to make her feel alive because she feels sort of bored and lifeless in the day to day. And so um, <laughs> like maybe, maybe time to get a new friend. Jane. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But, but, you know, so, so there's, yeah, there are those differences of disposition and um, it can be a burden in a sense that that it can be a burden often for people if they feel that hyper awareness. But there is a lot you can do to work with it and anxiety treatments or OCD treatments. Sometimes people just have these or obsessive thoughts, right, that is that there you can do things to increase your brain's tolerance of the uncertainty by a kind of systematic exposure or choosing to go towards the thing that scares you so you know when we give purpose to our struggle purpose to our anxiety it's much better for us and actually increases our tolerance than if we think we're just suffering needlessly. And so if you're doing something that scares you because you feel like you have to, that's not going to be as good for your brain learning to manage itself. Because when you feel like you don't have a choice, it makes your anxiety go up even more. It makes you feel that you're powerless to protect yourself. But if you choose deliberately to subject yourself to thoughts or activities that stress you because you want to expand your tolerance of uncertainty because you want your brain to learn to handle it well that meaning in and of itself is helpful but it also just in the act of being engaged there your brain starts to learn like we're not going to die you know we are okay i maybe don't need to treat this as a life or death moment and, you know, some people recommend doing this by what they call flooding experience. You just go do that. You're scared of spiders. So you just get in a booth full of spiders. <laughs> but of course, it's hard to convince people to do that. <laughs> um, but usually what treatments are is just and you can do this with yourself is graded exposures to things that are difficult for you. So you, you know, you move towards the thought or the activity that pulls you into some place of anxiety and you stay you stay present for it you don't let yourself get away from it you don't let your mind go somewhere else you stay engaged in the anxiety evoking reality and stay there until you watch your anxiety level come down and come down really far like not just to the level it was before the exposure but even more and so when people start to see that that actually works, it gives them more confidence that they can do something about the level of fear that they're managing in their day-to-day -day lives. 
It does seem like there's been a few times when I've worried about something happening or been really stressed about something happening, and then it does happen. And it does seem like in mm. those times, the worry about it was so much worse than the reality of the yes. things happening. Even just when when Ebola, there was some Ebola scare a couple of years before the actual pandemic, and I cried my way through the grocery store, picking up supplies and gloves and hand sanitizer, and just, we're all going to die. And then you know, a few years later, there's an actual pandemic and I go to the store yes. suited up and there's nothing on the shelves. And I'm like, I can't believe this is actually happening. I thought this would happen and it happened. But um, yeah, it, the reality of it wasn't as horrifying yes. as anticipating. Yes. You know? And thanks absolutely. to the Ebola scare, I had what I needed for pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> We're prepared. Yeah. You had the hazmat suit right in the closet. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, so I had a client who just terrified, terrified of her children being hit by a car on their way to school. And then it actually happened to one of her kids. And the daughter, thankfully, was okay and was minimally harmed and so on. But it actually made her realize, like, wait a minute, I can do this. I can live through this. I can solve it. I can be efficacious within it. You know, sometimes if my mind goes to the end of the world or things like that, you know, I will say to myself, as horrible as that would be, right? I, as long as I'm alive, I will still be able to make a difference. I will still be able to act. I'll still be able to do things. And so it's just like reminding myself of the fact that I will continue to be an agent, even if I, there are things outside of my control. And that, that sense of powerlessness is what I think we're most terrified of, as opposed to the reality itself, it's often that we will be powerless in the face of that reality, that we'll be unable to, you know, salvage our lives or something. And so both the tolerance that we can get through it and the reminder that we are continue to be actors and choosers, I think, is very helpful. I know, Jennifer, you said you're not an anxiety um, specialist or expert, but can you talk a little bit about using medication for anxiety, I think there's some things tied to using medication, like mm -hmm. maybe people feel broken, like if they have to use medication because they mm -hmm. can't manage it on their mm -hmm. own, or maybe they're just anxious about, you know, the side effects that the medication will have. Um, what's yeah. some of your perspectives and thoughts about medication yeah, sure. with anxiety? Sure. Well, first of all, I don't think weak people take medication. Strong people take medication. That is, it's strong to say, this is a problem that's beyond my ability to deal with it. And it's interfering with me living my life. It's interfering with me being engaged with my children. It's interfering, you know, I'm putting too much pressure on my spouse to handle my anxiety. And so I need to do something about my anxiety. Well, that's what a strong person does right? It's when we're able to take deeper responsibility for our challenges and do what's needed. And sometimes medication is what's best. Um, I think a lot of times when I've been doing mental health counseling and I'm working with depression or anxiety, I start, it depends. I, I do an initial assessment. And then if I think, look, this person needs medication just because their levels are so high, you know, I might start there. But if there's somebody who's kind of borderline, what I want to see is how responsive are they to a therapy? How responsive are they to working with their own thoughts? Does it work for them to subject themselves to difficult things? And are they able to get their anxiety to come down? Or are they staying stuck? Is it not 
working for some reason. So if I think, look, this is, they're, it's like trying to teach them to swim, but they're in, you know, the ocean with the riptide, you know, it's just, it's too much. And so you need, the medication is a kind of, you know, floaty or something, you know, you're giving them something to work with while they're building their skill level. And they may become strong enough to need it less as possible, or they may need that uh, because their mind is just wired very uh, to be very sensitive to the uncertainty and the anxieties. And that's not a function of weakness. It's a function of doing what you need so you can live a meaningful, rich life and be engaged in it. Mm-hmm. You were talking about how to arm yourself with facts and um, mm-hmm. to learn more about a situation if you're feeling anxious about it. That um, learning more about it can be helpful. And I was just thinking of putting, you know, when I do things that make me anxious, like flying, I've always said like, well, I know I'm safer in an airplane than brushing my teeth or whatever, but Mm. my brain doesn't, my limbic brain doesn't care about statistics. But I was just thinking about how you always say you behave your way into a new way of thinking. That's right. Um, But I was just thinking, yeah. So when you equip yourself with those facts, even though you still feel the same level of anxiety, that's a good measure of like going forward with something. Right. And then the yes. more you do, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was just thinking, you know, those numbers and statistics don't really help me. But if I kind of use that as like, okay, logic says this is a good idea. Yeah. So even though I'm anxious, I will go forward. Yeah, right. So you can use it as I know this is my anxiety taking over. So I, I know that doesn't feel rational or true, but this is my, you know, my obsessive thinking that's hijacking my, so you can kind of use that as just a self-awareness. You know, I am regressed. I've sometimes said that to myself, like I'm regressed and overwhelmed. So my best self is not even showing up to thinking about this because I'm too overwhelmed. And it's just a way of signaling to yourself and another person if needed that, you know, I'm not, I'm off and I just haven't figured out how to get on yet. But it can also then like help you know how to act. So as you're saying, Christy, well, maybe I can't feel that's true, but I can have faith in that it's true (laughs) and have that faith then guide my next action. Yeah. And sometimes partners, I think, in an effort to help will be like, oh, that's just irrational. You're totally wrong. Here's the data. (laughs) And that doesn't necessarily help. Right. It doesn't because that's not really the issue. The issue is anxiety tolerance and that your brain is not in a position to, your, your prefrontal is not engaged at this point. So trying to talk to the prefrontal is not going to be particularly helpful. I remember getting parenting advice, like when my child, um, I have a child on the spectrum and he would sometimes just become so overwhelmed with his environment. He was being bombarded on the autism spectrum. And I would sometimes be trying to explain things to him, like, it's okay, this is just this, you know, and he just was, his brain was in no position to handle it. And I remember reading some advice, which was just like, just, just help regulate, right? Whether that's taking them out of the situation, holding them, you know, giving them a reassuring phrase, whatever it is. And then any learning you do later when their brain is settled down. Mm hmm because it's not going to get in otherwise, right? The, no, the limbic brain does not care what the prefrontal has to say when it's trying to keep you from its perception that you're going to die. 
Are there are there like tricks to tap into your prefrontal when you're feeling very limbic? Like is there some- Well, one is just that self-awareness that I was saying like I am regressed. I am being crazy right now. This is my OCD, meaning crazy. I don't mean to say so pejoratively, but you know, you know that you're you're not in your highest order thinking. Yeah. And so even just to flag it helps because you can say to yourself, I will eventually settle down and I'll be more able or I can do something right now to work with my anxiety. I can go towards the thing that my prefrontal knows is okay because then my in action, I can change my thinking. In doing that, I can convince my limbic of what my prefrontal knows. So you you can just kind of give yourself signposts. You know you're kind of crawling through the dark, right? But you can say, okay, I know that I'm unable to see, but I trust it's there. And so what do I need to do that's going to help me get clearer? And it's usually going into the uncertainty and knowing that you're choosing to do that, right? Just like you go to the gym. If if anybody were, if you were just without any context to suddenly be feeling what you feel when you're exercising, right? You think you're going to die, right? You're just like, ah, you know, what's happening? <laughs> okay. But because we, ha- we know we're choosing to do it, we're doing it because we want to get stronger. We want to take care of our bodies. Those meanings help us handle a lot of discomfort. And so it's very similar with expanding our minds around acute anxieties. Sure. Yeah. What do you think for spouses? You know, what's their responsibility? How how can they best support someone who feels anxious? Yeah. So I think, um, let me say at least two directions that I think it's unhelpful. I think it's unhelpful to be insensitive to it. Like it's just an irrationality. You know, it's, um, you know, like, no, that's crazy. Like, that's ridiculous. There's no reason why you should be afraid of that. Here's the statistics. Here's the data. That is not helpful, particularly because it's not, first of all, it's, 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 it's behaving as if the person who's ang- anxious is just trying to be difficult or crazy, okay, rather than they're caught in a way of thinking that feels very real, that feels very terrifying, that feels very overwhelming. And so the, the lack of understanding can really be unhelpful. Um, and, and I'll talk about helpful in just a minute. But <clears throat> the other version of unhelpful is that the whole family gets run around the anxious parents' fears. So I worked with a couple where she was anxious about everything, lots of things. And she would demand that her husband manage that because she felt so bombarded, which meant the whole family did almost nothing. And this created resentments in her children and in her husband, but it also made her more anxious, more afraid, more feeling like she had to be in control of everyone just to manage this regressive part of her. And so that's also a problem. Um, so what, what I think is helpful is, first of all, the person who has a problem with anxiety, you know, on some level needs to recognize I have an issue with this and what do I need, what do I need to understand about it and what do I need to do about it? Because once they're in that collaborative position with themselves, they can ask for a partner to collaborate with them around it. So that might be like, okay, I'm terrified of flying, but I also don't want to keep the family from good experiences. And so this is what might help me. So it means a, 
as partner that's compassionate to or understanding of what the anxious spouse is handling, but they're working together about with around ways to grow in this way. So there's a balance between those two. Like we're not just going to do it my way because I'm not anxious, nor are we going to just not push on this issue at the cost of others in the family. So how can we do this in a way that's helpful to you in expanding you, the anxious person's um, anxiety in the world? And so there's, you know, just a, it's part of loving and caring for one another is the person that's anxious might say, like, I don't want to go anywhere, but I love these people too much to make that be the dominating reality. And the less anxious person saying, okay, well, I wish my spouse didn't have this issue, but I love this person. I care about them. And so how am I going to relate to this with them? And in order for us to keep growing as a couple and as a family. Would you say the same thing if you have an anxious child or a, a kid who is showing some anxiety around yeah, things? Yeah, I mean, I think ideally it depends on the age of the child and so on. What Let's say your child is young. Um, well, it's helping them to name and understand. Okay, this is like how some of the approaches are that you teach the child that there's this worry bully that comes in and tells you things that aren't true and keeps you from the things that you want to do. And so you can talk back to the worry bully. You can be stronger than the worry bully. So it's a way of helping them understand a mental process and how they can be a chooser within it. It's not that the worry bully isn't a bully and isn't difficult, but you don't have to necessarily fold to the worry bully. Um, as the child gets older, you know, again, it's about them taking more responsibility for what they struggle with and you helping them to have resources around it. It doesn't mean judging it as like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. Why are you worried about that? That's silly. You know, you're not, <laughs> it could be easy to do that, especially if it's a teenager or an adolescent and you think that they're getting caught in something that's bad for them to stay caught in. But of course, that doesn't help them. That just makes them defensive or hide it from you more rather than being curious and understanding what they're dealing with and helping them find the resources they need, whether it's a counselor who helps them with anxiety or there's different apps that can help. There's different books they can read, but to help them learn how to work with their unique mind to have the fear not dominate their life and their choices. But they ultimately, you know, like all of us, have to take responsibility for our challenges if we're going to uh, grow and use them to become stronger people. I kind of wanted to ask about like having compassion for yourself. I think one of the mm -hmm. one of the things I worry about, I mean, I worry about everything with my kids. And so I then worry that if something that I thought about does happen to them, what's going to become of me <laughs> because I'll never forgive myself. I don't know if you have any thoughts about self-compassion for people with anxiety or um, forgiveness. Yeah. Well, there's two levels of, of compassion there. It's just, you know, one of our great life tasks is to just accept ourselves as we are. That is, you know, there's things I dislike very much about my, meaning there's things that I, I was just thinking about this yesterday. If I could just change this, would I change it? Well, I'd be afraid if I changed some of my limitations that it would affect some of my strengths <laughs> because all of us are, 
working in that reality. I'm a little bit ADD. I'm more of a creative thinker, but then I can sometimes feel harder for me to keep in categories kind of things. And so I often feel sort of bombarded by all the things that I could or ought to be doing. Um, and so, you know, there's just, we all are working within a, a mix of limitation and capacity and sometimes just forgiving ourselves for the fact of limitation is just part of our spiritual development. That is the ability to tolerate limitation in ourselves and others that we love. And so there's that level of forgiveness that we may not like that our brains are wired anxiously, but it's also just part of the human experience. And it's often a part of the beauty and the good in a person. You know, my daughter's a musician. She also struggles with anxiety. Those two really go together. Um, I think of you, Christy, as one of the funniest, most insightful, really, truly, in, and incisive people in terms of understanding human beings. And I think it's part of your sensitivity in the world. And so it is, it is the other side of that attunement. Um, so forgiving ourselves for the downsides. But so much of character development and growth is working with our limitations, probably more than our strengths, really. It's like our strengths there kind of help us along, but, but it's working with where we aren't strong that we often develop a kind of compassionate, solid core. And so just forgiving life for that fact of limitation. The other piece, though, in what you're saying, I think, is just this idea that because I thought it, I should have therefore done something and that therefore it was my responsibility. Well, I would say to you, that's the anxiety talking. <laughs> that's the, I, that's the false control that your brain wants that if I thought something, therefore I now have a responsibility to it. You know, the second part of the compassion is not just not just forgiving ourselves for our limitations, but the fantasy, I think, often in anxiety is because I thought it, therefore I'm responsible. And therefore, you know, I have to do something to prevent this. And that's just the anxiety, you know, or the obsessiveness hijacking your thinking. There is no rational reality in which a parent must keep a child from all bad things. It's just not possible. And if we try too hard to do it, we end up actually hurting our child because we teach them to live anxiously and we teach them to be terrified in the world and we keep them from growing their own confidence in their capacity to live in an uncertain world. And so it is an irrational sense of responsibility that is in place because it gives our minds, you know, when I was talking at the beginning of the episode about how we like to have thoughts, we, we look for thoughts that give us a sense of control. Mm -hmm. I'm going to keep my children from all negative outcomes, okay? And I would, I'm going to keep them from doing this. That's a way of pulling our anxiety down a little bit because it gives us the fantasy of control. But in reality, only acts as a kind of damper on our anxiety, but not as an, as an actual efficacious belief or behavior. And so 
what I think you're speaking to, Christy, is this fantasy that I can actually keep my kids from hard things or from difficult things happening to them. It might be better to say to yourself, difficult things will happen to my children. Difficult things will happen to my children when they are minors and still in my care. Difficult things will happen to them when they are out of my care and adults. And um, that is a function of living life. So it's like telling your brain what it wants to get away from or imagine it has control of and instead exposing your brain to that reality over and over and over again until it can calm down around that uncertainty and that reality. Yeah, that's good. I mean, it feels it feels like so much more than just an anxiety. It feels like a responsibility, you know, and yes. I have four kids and it's my full-time job to be worried about all the things that can and will go wrong. And yeah, it's exhausting to live this yes. way. Really well, is. worry again is sometimes our mind's fantasy that it's actually doing something when it yeah. actually is keeping you from the more important some things, which is being present and engaged. But it's also reminding yourself, I'm only responsible for what I can control, which is trying to discern what are wise risks, wise decisions, but I'm not capable of controlling, nor am I responsible for controlling all the variables that are outside of my control. That's just a function of living on the planet. And I wish it were in my control. Wouldn't it be nice because you could just turn the world into a better world for all of us, Christy. But- <laughs> <laughs> I would do it. I'd be vigilant. I'd do it. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's your mind wanting control that it doesn't have. One of the, one of the tools I use, I learned a long time ago when I'm flying is um, this pilot has a website that teaches you tricks, but he was just saying those, those dips up and down feel like you're falling 10 mm-hmm. feet and up 10 feet or 50 feet or hundred feet. Mm-hmm. But like, if you watch the the uh, flight attendant, their head isn't hitting the ceiling. And so Mm -hmm. I do that, you know, it's like, this feels so scary, but their head isn't hitting the ceiling. And so I kind of try to do that in life as well. You know, I kind of dismiss my husband because he's too far the opposite direction, but (laughs) kind of getting a read, the more I talk to more people and be like, would you be not like I want to use others to measure what I should be thinking. No, no, no. It's it is using that as a gauge to see if other people's heads are hitting the ceiling or if I'm just feeling the bumps bigger than they are. Right. You know? Exactly. Or you're looking at the the flight attendant's face. Does she or he look anxious and afraid and like or are they just like whatever? <laughs> yeah. Business as usual. It really yeah. does help yeah. me a lot. Yeah, absolutely. So. Absolutely. And I, I think that's functional. It's, you're borrowing a brain that you, it's it's that same idea. Like, I know I'm regressed. I know I'm in my limbic brain. So I'm looking to other minds that are functioning better right now to track if this is just my anxiety talking or if this is something real. And that, that's very helpful. Yeah, it's I've, I've noticed a big difference, you know, and just I, I guess I've kind of come to do that naturally, like to realize that my anxiety is hijacking me. And so even though it's difficult, I'll, I'll just sometimes or maybe this is the wrong approach, but take myself out of a conversation, you know, like my daughter wanted to drive an hour and a half down the freeway to Waco and it was stressing me out so much. Mm-hmm. And I just finally thought, I, I see the good points they're making, but like, I can't handle this right now. So like, mm-hmm. I trust, I have to, I don't know, hand it over to Blaine or just be yep. like, I know that I'm not speaking wisely right now. Yes. So, no, that's, you know. it's a very valuable thing to do to just know when you're maxed out and can't do what's best for your child to hand it over to someone else 
is a, is a very loving thing to do. It's like half the battle in life is knowing when not to trust ourselves, actually, <laughs> right? To have enough self-awareness to know when we're up against a limitation and need to borrow the thinking and framing of other people. And so, yeah, it's, it's very decent. It's, it's a very solid choice to make. Oh, good. And hopefully I'll get stronger and be able to stay in the conversation mm-hmm. at some point. But mm-hmm. for now, that's been it's been helpful. And that like circled it back to the very beginning about listening to yourself and pushing when appropriate. And I don't know, it was very, yeah. very nice. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, this interview evoked some anxiety. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> and you went right towards it. And here you are. And you did an amazing job. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, we ask that you please rate, review, and share the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from Dr. Jennifer's work.